Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. buddy doing good buddy thank you for having me of course i'm glad you're back it's been forever yeah yeah this is a big honor here to be on the uh habitat podcast as a co-host i think uh hopefully you won't lose any followers after this one well <laughs> you know it's actually hard to find a co-host who drinks bush light like i do so you're actually the perfect fit well, not everybody has refined taste like us. <laughs> oh, man. Good to catch up with you. Tell me about what's going on new with you. You know, let's, We haven't caught up on some Habitat work on our intro in a while, so let's, uh, I know it's been a busy time of year for me, and I've seen some of your Facebook posts. What you been doing? Oh, just trying to get everything wrapped up. I like to try to stay out of there in September. And uh, about one more weekend coming up, I just got some stand work, and Got to get the rye and the oats planted, and, and I can stay the heck out of there until we get a cold front. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Um, now, you're going to top dress. I always say overseed. Everybody probably always hear me say overseed, and uh, I mean top dress. So you're going to top dress with rye, grain, and uh, oats, you said? Yeah, I'll, I'll top dress some of my problem plots, which thankfully I don't have many this year. I was going to say, I didn't see any bare spots, man. Yeah, the, the backfield, I had some trouble with the beans because uh, I usually have neighbors that rotate beans and corn, but uh, there's no beans around me this year. The farmer across the street put in wheat, and the farmer to the west has all corn, so the deer have been pretty hard on my beans, so I will oversee those. Okay, yeah, that's a, a good idea. I see... Uh, Jake Elinger does that a lot with his beans. Um, and then, like, that, that oat and rye choice, I think, is a good it's a good thing to throw on no matter what. I mean, even if you didn't have bare spots, that young, tender growth come bow season is uh, not a bad thing, right? Yeah, definitely. Plus, the uh, rye and the oats are a little more cold-hardy, so they'll last a little bit further into the season for you. Okay, nice. I um, yeah, your place looks spectacular, man. I mean, for everybody who doesn't follow Brian on Facebook, um, you gotta go check him out. He really 
knocks it out of the park with uh, just the design of that front field even. I mean, it just looks so professional. I mean, mine looks like a a kindergartner did it, but, I mean, it's it, it'll work. But, I mean. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. No, it looks, re- I mean, it looks really good. Um, I'm not just saying that. It does. I I planted my last plot this weekend. Uh, I did it the old-fashioned way with the spray disc cult the pack with the Packer Max. I did uh, like a, a winter pea and oat deal, which I did last year. worked out really good. Um, packed it all down. That was Sunday. It was like 90 degrees. I mean, we died out there. And oh, then, yeah, brutal. Uh, uh, and then Monday, it um, it rained a little bit. Monday night, it definitely rained. And then today is Wednesday. It rained a little bit last night, too. So I have like a half inch of rain on top of a freshly planted, my last plot. So I'm feeling pretty good about how all that came out. Perfect. Yeah, I I hope so, man. It's all you can do. And, and like you said, go in, I'm going to go in there again a little bit later than you. Um, with the with the rye and the oats, and um, yeah. my farm doesn't get good till late October, so I'm not screwing anything up going in there in September. But uh, definitely gonna do that over right. seed mix that you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. So, how about how your trail cameras looking? What you got on there? Uh, I've got one buck that's been there since uh, they started growing antlers, and he's he's a beautiful ten. I'm guessing he's uh, probably mid mid 140s. Oh wow! It's gonna be nice to see him once he gets the uh, velvet off in another week or two. Here we'll see. Try to get a little better grasp on him, but he's the only one that's been steady, and we got some good daylight fix of him. But uh, there's been a few other mature bucks off and on, but they're not regulars. I think they're bedding further away. But uh, we always end up with an influx come uh, once the velvet gets off. So we'll we'll have some new guys on the cameras for sure. It's it's pretty much been steady for the last five years. Okay, so you have uh, more deer show up instead of leave come that September velvet shed. Right, right. Yeah, we'll have we'll have usually two or three mature bucks that'll start that probably get displaced from other bachelor groups is my guess, and they'll move into where the the food and the does are as the season moves on. Very nice, man. Not much more you can ask for. No. Got to do that and try not to put too much pressure on it because you get so excited with all the good food plots and everything you got going. Well, if you have trail cam pictures of that Big Ten in daylight come uh, end of September, are you going to pop in there first thing? Yeah, if he's uh, regularly on the schedule during daylight hours, I'll give it a crack. Awesome. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Definitely. So we're doing something different tonight. We got a new co-host taking the spot, and then we're talking to somebody far, far away from us. What do you think about that? Going down south tonight? Oh, that's great. We get uh, a lot of questions from different guys. I know just from being on your podcast and talking to some guys at some different shows get a lot of questions from guys in the south and it's they they sort of get the short stick a lot because there's so many of us doing it in the north and there's just not a whole lot of info out there for them but uh, that's starting to change and i think having mark on tonight will 
will make a big difference in that arena too. Yeah, I think you said it well. Um, I don't hear a lot of people always talking about it, but I feel like there are just as many guys down there, you know, trying to do what what we try to do. And uh, you know, I actually had a listener, uh, Will Stevens, reach out. Nice loyal listener. Um, asked me about it and had some good questions. Actually, actually suggested this guest. So, you know, hats off to you, Will, for uh, reaching out and uh, making things happen. So now we got Mark Buxton coming on. And, uh, you know what, I say we just call him up and get him on. Are you ready to roll? Ready to roll. All right, well, uh, hold on one sec. I'll give him a call. All right. All right, guys, we are recording. We're here with Mark Buxton. Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. How about you all? Doing good. Brian, how doing are you? Doing good. Fantastic, Jared. Thank you for having me. No problem, guys. I'm excited about tonight. We're covering some new ground in the southeast. Mark, for anybody who doesn't know you, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, you know, where you live now, what you do for a living, all the all the good stuff. Well, I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Maryland. Um, grew up there uh, milking cows and throwing hay bales, and uh, went to school uh, for wildlife, came out of there, and I was hired to uh, run a 25,000-acre plantation in South Carolina. So in my early 20s, I moved to South Carolina. Uh, I did that for about 18 years and uh, left there and went out on my own uh, consulting and, and managing property. And have been doing that now for uh, about ten or eleven years. Wow! You said how many acres? Twenty-five thousand. You were in charge of. Yeah, twenty twenty-five thousand acres and eighteen employees. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah had, I saw uh, a picture. I saw a picture on your Facebook page with all those bucks on the side of that building from South Carolina. Those were impressive bucks, anywhere. That was one year's worth. Wow. No way. Yeah, we, um, of that 25,000 acres, um, I took about 10 or 12,000 acres in one block and put it into a management program. And, um, it took several years, you know, to get it going and everything to come around. But, uh, after we got it where we wanted it, we were killing 40 to 45 mature bucks off of it every year. Oh, that's man. incredible. Yeah. And, and of course, they weren't all, you know, a lot of those ones on that wall were, you know, 140s, you know, inch deer and stuff. But, I mean, they weren't all, there was all some management deer and this and that. But we had, we averaged removing 40 to 45 mature bucks from that, that block every year. So who, who owns 25,000 acres in, in the world back then? Uh, what, you know, I'm, I could, I could barely well, afford was, 15. How does this work? It, it was actually set up uh, kind of like an association. There was 20 different owners, and uh, they actually owned it for quail hunting. Uh, we quail hunted every day of the season except for uh, Sundays, and they came there to quail hunt. We had, uh, and we quail hunted off a of horseback. So we, 
Uh, we had uh, about 25 horses and about 45 bird dogs. And every day of quail season except Sundays, I would send uh, three trucks, three horse trailers, uh, 12 to 14 horses, and 24 bird dogs to the woods every day. Whoa. Okay. Well, we've already established something. You guys have more fun uh, down there than we do up here. That's for sure. <laughs> And the thing is, that that was kind of one of the good things about those. You know, there's a there's a kind of a difference between wing shooters and deer hunters. You know, and a lot of wing shooters they're in it for the excitement and 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 you know sitting in a tree for hours on end. They're just not into that. So I mean, right, the people right. that, the people that own this place were wing shooters. They loved to quail hunt. They lived to quail hunt, but they didn't give a darn about a deer. So um, the, the cool thing about it was is I convinced them that, you know, big bucks are worth big bucks. And while they didn't care about the deer, they realized that, that if you have a deer herd on your property, it's an asset. And by improving the deer herd, uh, their property, the, the deer hunting lease became worth that much more money. So they allowed me to kind of free range to do what I wanted to with the deer herd, and that's how we ended up with that that program we were in. Wow. That's impressive. And that was in South Carolina, you said? Yes. And to tell you, the way we turned that property around, the, you got to realize now that, that that's in what they call the low country of South Carolina, which would be the southern part of the state. And it's, it's sandy ground. I mean... It looks like you ought to stick a beach umbrella up. It's so sandy, and the ground is so poor and and not great genetics. The county record in that county, the biggest buck ever killed in that county, was 147 inches, and we ended up killing a buck that scored 161 inches. So we beat the county record by 14 inches. Man, okay, so. And Every year, we we put more bucks into the state record book off of that property than the entire rest of the county did. Wow. Yeah, so we were we were we were growing. You know, everybody you know grows one or two every year. And you know, like I said, we were we were removing forty to forty five every year. And how old were you when you were doing this? Uh, in my, well, I started doing it in my twenties, you know, and it took, it took five, six years, you know, as I tell people, it takes five years to grow a five-year-old buck. Right. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, it took a few years to, to turn it around, but I mean, and every year got better. And of course records, you know, you, you're watching your weights come up and you're watching your, 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 your buck scores come up and every year got better and better and better and better. And, and so we started tweaking the program, you know, and, um, when your program gets better, your management deer get better because your lower end deer also, not only do your top end deer get better, but your lower end deer get better. So as years went by, the deer we were removing as management bucks, you know, got better. So we tweaked the program and tweaked the program. But, you know, it, every year, I was there for 18 years, and every year it got better, better, better. And, and, and I'd say we've probably been in it about 10 years or so before we, you know, when we killed that buck that beat the county record by 14 inches. Man. 
Now, what made you leave that that uh, job after being there for so long and and strike out on your own? Um, I mean, now you're in Alabama, and you know what, right. what what made you uh, change and leave that? Because that sounds pretty gravy, my friend. Well, it was a combination of a lot of things because every everything that I just told you about that I did with the deer. I did it in the evenings and the weekend. Uh-huh. And the main, the, the only thing that that property was there for was quail hunting. And as I said, they gave us full range with the deer herd, but we weren't allowed to take any of our work time to pull with them or employee time. So everything was done by me and my son on in the evenings and on the weekends. So, it, you know, it wasn't like we were out there during the day planting the booth lots and all that, but, uh, anyway, it got to where, you know, I, w- I spent 18 years, pretty much 90% of my time was, was propagating quail and, and turkeys. Um, and I really did want to get into deer full time. And about that same time, the owners and I, you know, we got, you know, kind of disgruntled over some things and this and that, and it was, it was time to go. Now that makes sense. I mean, if if your real passion is deer, and and you weren't uh, necessarily you know there for that that exact goal, number one, I can see that. Um, so what made you well, go to you Alabama? Have to like to, you know, fresh out of school, and you know, you don't have a very big resume. So the the doors that are going to open for you are not many. But being there and doing what I did with the deer herd. My, my resume grew a lot, and it opened a lot of doors for me that would not have been open 10 years earlier. And, you know, as, as I tell people, you know, you can you can give people a resume and a list of, you know, your education and all that all day long, but what most landowners want to see is results. And, and especially if they're going to be spending a lot of money. So... You've got to show them, hey, I've done this before. So anyway, being there on that property kind of it built me a reputation and opened up doors that, um, you know, I've, I've been on some work for some of the, I mean, I'm sure you know Will Primos or Primos Game Calls. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I spent several months working on one of his properties. You know, that that those kind of doors would not have opened for me until I did what I did with the other deer herd in South Carolina. Okay. That's a good point. So you so you built your resume up and uh you know some doors were opened and uh did you go right to to doing this stuff for yourself after that or uh were there some more things in between that, that you learned from or or, or what did you do next? Uh, pretty much pretty well you gotta realize too I spent eighteen years learning. Um and Yeah that's a lot. Yeah, so I've learned a lot about managing deer in, you know, 18 years of managing 25,000 acres. So, um, no, pretty much I went straight into on the road. Um, my wife and I, for about two years, we kind of li- lived like gypsies, going property to property. Like I said, I spent two months on Will Primos' property. Uh, we spent about nine months in western Kentucky uh, working uh, for Thompson Center Firearms on a 12,000-acre property up there. And anyway, kind of jumped all around from Texas all over the southeast. And then it, 
you know, it was like, you know, it's time to settle down and, 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 and get a home base and then work from there. So that's, that's what, that's, that's when we ended up coming to Alabama. Perfect. Well, I think that's a pretty good background there, Mark. Um, thanks for going into that. Now, the reason we got you on here, we want to hear more about what you do down there in uh, the south, southeast, because I think, you know, Brian and I kind of talked before you jumped on. Um, this is just as many guys down there wanting to do this type of stuff, but I feel like everybody's focus is always on the Midwest or, you know, the, the Northeast. I know here in Michigan, all the properties broke up a lot into into many, you know, smaller, much smaller pieces. So maybe that's part of the reason it's so popular here too. Um, but I think there's a lot of guys down there who uh, are, you know, striving for some information. And, you know, what? why do you think nobody uh, covers it as much? And, I mean, it's just as important down there, is it not? Oh, it is. That's one of the reasons I'm mean, living in Alabama. First of all, you got to realize Alabama is very rural. Um, I think there's more actual timberland in Alabama than there is anywhere east of the Mississippi. Um, but, but I mean, it's very rural. A lot of hunting acreage, and um, you know, there's there's always people starving for information. If we're fortunate in that, um, in our job, and and, and my two sons also work this with me, and we hands-on manage about ten to 12,000 acres of land every year, and that's land where we do everything. It's absentee landowners, and we do all the planning, the spraying, the coyote trapping, the camera surveys. We handle all the timber sales. I mean, we do everything for those landowners. And then outside of that ten or 12,000 acres, then I have consulting clients that we go, some of them are annual, some of them are semi-annual, some of them are quarterly. But um, that's about another, I don't know, 30,000, 35,000 acres. Jeez, wow. There's some, it seems like the, the tracks down there are much larger on an average. Um, it seems obvious that they're just so much larger. Is that is that pretty true? Well, I mean... A lot of the people we work for, in fact, all the people we work for, um, and where we actually hands-on run their whole property for them, um, you know, they're they're the, you know, they're the two thousand, four thousand acre type, you know, landowners. Um, but what you have in the South that you don't have quite as much of, I think, in the Midwest North is, is large timber company land. Um, there's in the county below where I live here, there's a timber company that has. I think it's 300,000 acres of timber in that county. So, I mean, there is just hundreds of them or millions of acres in the south that's owned by timber companies. Well, that timber company land becomes deer hunting land. You know, that's just another sort. They they leased all the hunting rights out on those properties. So there is large, large amounts of acreage of people that just have uh, some of my consulting clients, they don't actually even own the ground. They just have a, a lease. Uh, one of them has 4,700 acres uh, leased from a timber company. Um, so that, that's a lot of the hunting down here is on timber company. Now, Mark, what do you think the major differences are between managing habitat in the south and the north? I don't know if you have a 
whole lot of experience coming up this way, but I was just curious on what you think the major differences are. Like I said, I lived in uh, western Kentucky for about nine months, and then, of course, we were right on the Ohio River. You could, you know, actually look across the end of Illinois, you know, southern Illinois, so I spent time in southern Illinois, too. And, you know, up there, um, you have 20-acre woodlots surrounded by large agriculture fields. And and all the deer are in that 20-acre woodlot. It's it's not it's not hard to tell where they're going to be at. They're either going to be in that woodlot or in the brush, you know, drains between the fields or whatever. But in the south, um, it's nothing to have a two or three thousand acre block of pine tree, uh, a pine plantation. And other than the roads and a few food plots and things, it's just two or three thousand acres of pine. So you have much bigger uh, blocks of actual timberland compared to say right, something right. like in the Midwest. That's a big difference for sure. Now is your is your land down there where you're at now, is it it I mean it sounds like it's significantly more timber, but is there a bunch of ag around or or no? Yeah, it depends it depends on where you're at. Um and it depends on what state. Um you know, there's parts of Alabama that are very rolling terrain and um i mean it looks kind of like even though you're in south alabama it looks kind of like you're in the appalachian region area or something real oh, wow. rolling well then it's just not conducive with um farming so that's you know all timberland there's in in the center of alabama is what they call the black belt um uh which is where the real good soils a lot of the best deer come from um there's some pretty big farming goes on, a lot of corn and beans and stuff in, in that area. Then when you get up to North Alabama, you get back into the mountains again. So, and, you know, Georgia's the same way. South Georgia is real flat, sandy, large fields, lots of corn, cotton, peanuts. You get more to North Georgia and you get back into the mountains again. South Carolina's the same way. Uh, the area where I managed that plantation, like I said, it was just as sandy uh, ground as you could you know, get, but yet when you get into the northern part of Alabama, you get back into that, you know, the, that mountainous area again. So it depends on, you know, what part of the state you're in, but in, in some areas there's an extremely large amount of uh, agriculture, and then you get into other areas where you can drive for miles and never see a corner bean field. Okay, so it sounds like it's fairly diverse. Um, actually, Very diverse, depending on whether you're in the northern or southern part of the state. Okay. Yeah, more more diverse than I had imagined. Um, my mom was actually born in Alabama, believe it or not, and uh, I've never been there. So I um, I'd like to think uh, I have a little bit of of your guys' roots in me somewhere, but uh, you know I, I I can't imagine what it looks like. I don't know what the deer hunting's like. I really don't know anything about it. So this is all really really interesting. Um, now when, when people talk about pines in the South, I mean you mentioned a, a gigantic pine plantation. When I talked to you earlier today, um, tell me a little bit about that. I think you said there was one that was thousands of acres, and you're trying to pin down deer inside that. Like, what are we talking about, really? Um, is it was it like a job you were on, or or what was that? Well, I, I have several consulting clients that are like that that have large timber leases and just thousands and thousands of acres of pine trees. 
and pretty much the only openings are either the roads, the small food plots, or if they happen to do, you know, a clear cut or something. So, you know, in those, on those situations compared to like say up north in the Midwest, Illinois, Iowa, wherever, to actually pinpoint and pattern a buck is almost impossible. And with you, <laughs> When you when you leave the side of those roads and you start in the woods, it's it's like a jungle, and all you're going to do is mess up. And that's why so much of southern hunting is done over food plots in the evening. Okay. Because you you got it. You're thinking, you know, you think about the Midwest or up north where you have a lot of hardwoods. Well, you know, a hardwood stand, you your understory is pretty much fairly open, where down here in the south, you have to realize, first of all, we have a lot longer growing season than you do. You know, th- things are going to start growing down here in March and grow all the way till November. We, you know, we don't even think about a frost until the middle of November, and, and a lot of times it's late November before we get a frost. So we have a lot longer growing season, and and we don't have those huge oak trees, hardwood tree canopies like you do that shades the understory. Um, down here, the understory is, in a, in a lot of places, is as tall as your head. A lot of, a lot of, and especially if it's pine trees that have had a first or second thinning and increased the sunlight to them, you know, a lot of native, native browse, um, native plants that have come back. So it, it, um, you're talking about, you know, five feet of understory growth. So that's why in the south you see a lot of the hunting done sitting over food plots and fields and things in the evening to get into the woods and actually hunt. Sometimes you end up messing up more than you do good. Yeah, that's one thing I saw on your Facebook page is your uh, attention to detail with the native forage, and uh, it makes a lot more sense now. Could you talk a little bit about the native forage that you have down there and the methods? that you use well, to uh, produce it and maintain it? Well, I tell people all the time, you know, deer have been around for thousands of years. Back in 1980s, Ray Scott started the food plot boom when he came out with white-tailed clover. You know, he was the first one to come out with a food plot product back in, you know, early 80s. But my question is, how did deer survive for thousands of years before we had food plots? Right. Good, good and, question. They, they survived on native forage and and native browse and people underestimate how important native forage is to a deer are browsers. You know, you and I, when our wife we're sitting in the living room, whatever, and our wife calls us for supper, we don't get up and pick out of a bowl here and pick out of a bowl there and work away. No, we get up and go straight to the table and sit down and eat. Deer don't work that way. A deer is pretty much chewing on something all the time. Even even if he gets out of his bed and there's a food plot a quarter or a half mile away, if there's native forage available, they will browse their way to the food plot. So native forage, for one, is free. You know, we're going out here paying two, three, four dollars a pound for these food plots. Native forage is free, and if you do the right things to stimulate it. In the south, when we have a pine plantation, and it when, when it's first planted, it's very dense, 
you know, very little sun, after it's about five years old, there's very little sunlight, and you lose a lot of your native forage. When it gets about 15 years old, they give it a first thinning, and all of a sudden sunlight starts coming in. And about five years later or so, you'll give it a second thinning, and then you really start letting sunlight in. Well, that sunlight stimulates the seed bank, and all whatever's in that seed bank is going to come on, and, and like I said, it's free. It's free deer food. It's great fawning cover. It's excellent uh, bedding uh, for, for whitetails. And the thing is, too, there is a lot of native browse species in the south, ragweed, uh, 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 three-seeded mercury, field aster, stuff like that, that is actually the nutritional numbers on them are as good as a lot of the stuff you plant in your food plot. So yeah, I was here, pre- here's, I was, here's, I was, excuse me, go ahead. I was pretty amazed by the amount of protein that I found out that was in ragweed and even some of the goldenrod and other native forages we have in Ohio here. That's right. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about native forage that, and, and of course, it depends on what time of year you sample it, but for the most part, you're talking about stuff that's running in the low 20s on protein. Well, that's as good as a lot of the clovers we plant. No so doubt. If I can stimulate and get that to come on for free, that's free food plots. And, and when you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of acres, that's, that's hundreds, if not thousands of acres of free food. And the best part is, it serves so many other purposes. Not only is, is it a food source and a high-quality food source, it's excellent fawning cover. It's excellent bedding cover. Um, it, it, it just serves so many purposes other than just than just food. So to us in our business, if we have a landowner who owns the land and can do things, we are big on stimulating native forage. Mark, you actually make me um... – Kind of regret planting food plots now. <laughs> well, there's there's nothing wrong with food plots, and and one of the the, the the cool things about it is 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 I tell people all the time, be site specific. Don't do something because John Doe in two states over is doing it, or yeah. John Doe 150 miles down the road. Do it because that's what's best for your property, and. And one of the things we do with our landowners is is site-specific plan to where what is best for your property. You know, I might go write a, a management plan up for somebody 10 miles down the road, and my management recommendations be totally different than what this guy is 10 miles away, just based on, on, on different things. So food plots are a very important part of a management program, but the cool thing about where we're – we're producing all this native forage. Our food plots don't take the, the the pounding as they would on a property where that's the only source of forage. To where the deer are just pounding that plot every day, all day. If you've got hundreds of acres of native forage, it takes it takes all that pressure off the food plots you have. No, that makes perfect sense. And why not have both? I mean. It, it, the, the crude protein levels in the in the forbs are higher, like, higher, are mo- like you said, mostly higher than a lot of the seeds we plant, anyways. Um, so you at least want both, especially maybe around the edges of your your food plots, where you'll 
you'll maybe notice the deer taking a bite of your clover, then maybe they'll take a bite of, you know, some goldenrod or, or some forbs. I mean, do you see that a lot? And oh, also, how do you create those soft edges? We've got properties that are overwhelmed with um, uh, food plot, and every property is different, but we have properties where we've got soybeans and cow peas and lab lab and clovers and just um, just all over them, and at the same time, I can take you along the edge of a field and and and, and, to look and show you where they are just browsing the heck out of giant ragweed, common ragweed. I mean, just you, you wouldn't believe it. Like, well, there's waist high soybeans out here, but here they are in here eating. A deer knows what they want, and they and, and they know right. what's best for them. Right. And and I don't care how long any times you tell them, they're not a deer knows what they need. And, and I, I, we've got properties like I said, we've got waist high soybeans. And the deer are hammering some of our native forage. And, and again, that's why we have waste high soybean. If, if you go to my Facebook page, a lot of times we'll put up a picture of a soybean field or cow field, and we always put on there, never had a fence around it. We do not fence our food plots to keep, you know, I believe in feeding deer. So one of the reasons we can have a two acre soybean field that's waist high with a high deer density is because we have so much available native forage to supplement it. Now, that, that sounds amazing. Um, I actually really like that topic, and I know Craig Harper talks a lot about that. We've even talked about it with one of our guests, uh, Ty Miller, before. Um, now, how does one go about – it's kind of one of the listener questions from on, from Facebook today – how does one go about managing for these native forbs? Um, I know you said thinning, so you have a you have a stand of pines and you take out every other row that lets the sunlight down. Native forbs grow high. I get that; that makes perfect sense. How else do you go about doing that? And when do you know, hey, this is what we need to do because your farm's lacking it? Or, or how does one determine that that's what they need versus a food plot? Well. Again, I don't think you need one or the other. I think you need both because they complement each other. And each one takes the pressure off the other one. But if, if you go to my Facebook page and look back several weeks ago, I put up a series of about, I don't know, seven, eight pictures of some 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 timber we had where we – I sat on there where we used fire and, and, and soil disturbance to stimulate the seed bank. And, I mean, it's just like – you couldn't want anything more. It's just solid ragweed and things just, you know, four or five feet tall, a sea of it as far as you can see. And, again, that's excellent. You know, forage, bedding, fawning cover, and all that. But there's the two best ways that you stimulate native forage is fire and soil disturbance. Those two things can have the greatest effect on the plant communities that will come back. And then the timing and frequency of how often you do them will also have an impact on the, the plant communities that come back. So um, not only the method you use, but the timing and frequency of the method will determine which plant communities come back. And, and a, a perfect example is if you want forbs and you do some, like, strip disking in the fall or early winter, 
you will see mostly Forbes and Broadleafs like ragweed and things like that come back the following spring. If you if you disc it in the spring, it will stimulate grasses, and you'll see more grasses come back. So really, I did not know that. Wow. Depending on what time of year you do it, will determine which plant community comes back. So you know, we do we do a, a, a lot of strip disking. If I can if I can plan a timber thinning, um, you know, late summer or so, so I'm disturbing that soil. It does the same. It's just like we disk it. I'm going to see a lot of forbs like ragweed and things come back um, the following year. So and in, you, in you don't way. have that over the the grasses, correct? And if you don't mind, would you please explain what strip disking is for those who may not know? Strip disking, um, in the south, we have a lot of what we call old field management. Um, it, it might be a property where a landowner bought and there was a lot of cow pasture, and now it's being allowed to grow up, you know, in native forage. Uh, it might be land. We get uh, in Alabama. We have a lot of what we call limestone veins, where it, it won't grow a pine tree. Um, so it's just kind of a sea of, 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 of native whatever you have come up and whatever you stimulate. So we'll, we can take those areas and take a take about a ten foot disc and disc a ten foot strip, skip twenty feet, disc another ten foot, skip twenty feet, and get and next year you will disc next to what you disc this year. The following year you will disc next to that. So theoretically, it's being disc every third year, but you're only disking, you know, ten foot, leaving twenty. Well, where you disc it, it will stimulate forward production like you just cannot believe. And what what happens really cool is you, you got to picture this in your mind. Here's this old field that's grown up. In you know native vegetation, you know five feet, six feet tall, and here's a ten foot strip disc, and it, well that becomes excellent turkey nesting habitat because the area you didn't disc next spring is excellent nesting. The area that you did disc, the ten foot strip you disc, when that young tender growth starts coming up in the spring, what's that? What's that going to do? Get insects. What better area is there for turkey poults than an area that's, you know, lush vegetation and a lot of, a lot of insects? That's, you know, that's, that's their spring and summertime diet. So that's the protein source. So here you've got great turkey nesting cover, quail too, um, directly adjacent to what will be great brood habitat. And at the same time, you're, you're growing great feed for your deer. You're, you're producing excellent fawning cover and bedding cover for your deer. Just a, just, Everything wins in a situation like that. Now, if, that, if that's in an old field, now in if it's in a pine plantation, the way we stimulate, we, we can either stimulate soil disturbance through timing of our thinning. When, you know, you picture a logger in there and the skitter's going, well, they're disturbing the soil. And, and, and they're actually stimulating and determining what's going to come back after that. We can time that for the right time. Or once you get into a second setting and your woods start to open up, then you can take a tractor. It's going to take about four years for those pine stumps to rot to where they'll bust up with a disc. But then you can start strip disking through the woods if you want. Or 
you can start dropping a match and, and burn it. We burn. That's one difference between the south and the north. Um, starting about February, mid-February through March here in the south, if you go out on a day, and you should be able to look in all directions and see a plume of smoke. Really? They're, oh, burning Burning is a big, not only for the benefit of the, of the timber, but for the wildlife benefit. Let's put it this way. When I managed that 25,000-acre plantation, we burned twelve to thirteen thousand acres every year. Oh so we were burning, you know, we were burning at least half that acreage. So we burned twelve to thirteen thousand acres. I mean, and a lot of people up north, it's hard to, you know, you see the California wildfires on TV, you're like, oh my gosh. Well, in the South, that's just a normal thing that the the late winter, spring fires, and like I said, on a Good day in February and March, you should be able to walk outside and look and just all the way on the horizon and see plumes of smoke where everybody's burning. So um, fire is one of the – it's one of the cheapest but best management tools there is in the South because, I mean, of course, you got to know what you're doing. You know what I mean? Take a fire – strike fire course, but you can stimulate so much positive uh, stuff from a fire that it, it – and, again, depending on the – the timing of your fire and the frequency of your fire that determines the plant communities that will come back. If you if you um, hot annual fires, that's where you end up with the sea of grasses, of uh, the broom sedges and Indian grass stuff like that. That's native warm season grasses. Your bunch grasses they love fire. They love hot fires and they love annual fires. So if you burn every year hot, hot, hot every year, you'll see your forbs disappear and your native warm season grasses come in. But if you burn either uh, every other year, every third year, and that that will keep more of your forbs and, and your browse species uh, in your habitat. And that's another thing is, as I've said before, everything's site-specific. I hate, I cannot stand cookie-cutter statements where someone says, this is what you need to do. Well, you just, you can't say that. Every property is different. So when somebody says, you need to burn your woods every three years, you need to burn your woods every five years, no, you burn based on what the plant communities are telling you needs to be done. I might have a property that I burn it every four years. I might have another property getting a lot more sunlight and, and uh, to the ground, I might burn it every two years. So there is no set rule that this is when you burn. You burn based on what the plant communities in your habitat are telling you you need to do. Right. Yeah, I think that's really important for our listeners to understand about the cookie cutters. There's definitely no always and nevers in habitat management. And I'll get over to the uh, Brian. Sorry, I, before you uh, move okay. on, I have a quick question. Actually, I just thought of. How do you know when to burn and what that will produce? How do you go about figuring that out? That's really, really interesting to me. And how do you know which one is right for you? Well, first of all, it determines what what species am I trying to propagate, whether it's quail, turkey, deer. Quail, uh, wild quail love negative warm season bunch grass. I mean, you, you have the cover, but you also have a lot of clean ground. You know, you got to realize the quail's a little, 
they like a lot of that clay, which is what you get around the warm season bunch of grasses. Even though there's a bunch of grass around the base, there's still clean areas. So if I'm if I'm managing for quail, I'm going to burn annually or every other year, depending on, you know, but I'm going to burn a hot fire because I want native warm season grass. If I'm managing for deer, I might I might want an area of warm season grasses or, or some mixed in just because they, they make excellent fawning cover and things like that. But I'm more looking towards the, the forb content. And, and, again, I let the plant community, that I, when I walk out there in the woods, if I tell people you can't manage out of the truck wind, just get out of the truck or off the pool or walk in the woods and see what you have. And when I start seeing that I need to do something, I do it. You know, if, you, if you're not burning enough here in the south, you're going to start seeing the woody component come on. You're going to start seeing your your sweet gums and other hardwoods start to re-sprout and come up. And when you see them, it's time to burn it hot and kill them back again. That might be three years, might be four, might be five, might be two. You just don't know. You have to get out there and see. But when you start seeing a lot of the woody component coming back into your understory, it's time to put a fire in there, clean it up, and set back to what we call early successional plants and, and get that going again. If, if And the more often you burn it, and that's what I'm saying about the frequency of your fire, the, the, the more you burn it, the hotter you burn it, you will stimulate more grasses. Um, the less frequent you burn it, you will you will see more of the, the broadleaves and forbs come in. But when you can right. have a combination of if I if I if I do a spinning on a block of timber, if I burn it good and hot right before uh, I know we're getting ready to spin it, and then I put the skitters in there and they're in there, you know, spinning around and tearing the ground up, I am going to end up with deer heaven because <laughs> I'm going to see all those forbs and the things I want come up, and it and it's just going to be you know deer heaven in there. It, that's just. The combination of fire and soil disturbance, it, oh, it just creates deer feet all over. That's a lot of good information there, Mark. Appreciate it. Uh, I've been looking at your photos on Facebook, and you look like you're a turkey junkie like me and Jared are. And I was just curious, in addition to the things that you've already talked about, obviously that's going to attract a lot more turkeys. What else can we do to attract more turkeys to our deer properties? Well, I'll tell you this. In the, in the South right now, there's a lot of talk going on and they're forming councils because uh, the turkey numbers and kill have dropped off the last few years. And But you know what? We're not having that problem on the properties we manage. And, and I'm not trying to sound egotistical, but it's because we're doing the basics. You know, don't don't look for some deep dark reason as to why turkey numbers get back to the basics. And on the properties we manage, a lot of the stuff we do for the deer is just goes hand in hand with the turkeys. There's nothing I like more than to have a pretty clover field, two three acres, and get a good fire next to it. You know, in February or early March. I mean, that's turkey. The turkeys love a fresh burn. Well, here you got a fresh burn directly adjacent to a clover field, and if I can then leave a if I burn one side of it and leave the other side, that's next year's burn. All of a sudden, here I've got excellent turkey nesting habitat directly adjacent to a fresh burn and a clover field.
time, if you look at my Facebook page, you see a lot of pictures of me, uh, especially if you go back. I kind of stopped putting up some of our traffic pictures, but, you know, we will. Re it's nothing for us to remove 200 coons and possums off of a property. And, um, and a lot of people say, oh, you move, catch 200, you're going to wipe them out. And no, we catch 200 every year. I mean, because wow. the neighbors aren't, so we're catching ours in our neighborhood. And a lot of our properties will, every spring and every fall, we'll catch about 100 coons and 100 possums. Well, that's 200 nest predators. That's 200 nest predators. And, and, and I tell people this, I call it turkey math. A, a turkey hen lays one egg a day. So let's say she's going to lay a clutch of 12 eggs. Well, there's 12 days that takes her to lay those eggs, and every once in a while they'll skip a day. But let's just say 12 days. Then she's going to start sitting in the nest. The incubation is going to take 28 days. So there's 40 days that there's eggs on the ground. Well, if I'm catching 200 nest predators every year, and we're not catching them all, that's 200 nest predators with 40 days to find a turkey nest. So, I mean, you think 200, 200 nest predators out there walking around the ground every night trying to find, and they get 40 nights to try and find that turkey nest. So it's no wonder that any turkeys make it at all. So the, the biggest impact we have on our turkey numbers, with no question whatsoever, is removing nest predators. And it's yeah, not I'll tell you this, I learned that back when I used to manage the quail plantation. We, you know, coons and possums are also terrible, you know, they're nest predators. Quail nest, the same as a turkey nest. So on that plantation, we were removing 400 to 500 coons and possums off of that plantation every year. And of course, it's 25,000, but we were removing four to 500 coons and possums wow. off of there every year. We had a permit we could track year-round, the depredation permit. And anyway, we did that to prop for the wild quail propagation. But when we started doing that, the turkey numbers went crazy. And I realized it was having an effect on the nesting success of the turkeys. So what we were doing for the quail with the annual burning and, and the controlling nest predators just went hand-in-hand hand with the turkey. And we had phenomenal turkey numbers. It was nothing to go out and hear 20, 25 gobblers anymore. So, wow. Um, yeah, a lot of people in the Northeast blame a lot of the predation on coyotes, but that's one thing I always try to mention to them. It's not just the coyotes, the coons. And I wasn't even aware that possums have that big of an effect, but I knew raccoons were. I know oh, that. yeah. Coons, coons, possums, and skunk. And I can tell you this. Now, coyote is the number one. And I can give you some data on that on the fawns, what we did. You know, they're the number one fawn killer, but they are not the number one turkey predator. The number okay. one turkey predator are coons, possums, and skunks. They, you know, it's nothing for them to destroy 70% of the turkey nest off of a property. Wow. So what is your preferred method for uh, controlling those raccoons and skunks and possums? Well, i tell you what we do, and when I say we can catch... You know, I catch 100 in the spring and 100 in the fall, and we take 200 off the property. I try to catch 100 in a week. And the way we do that is, first of all, you have to realize that coons and possums are what we call congregational feeders. They have no problem 
being around eight or ten other coons and possums eating. So if we have a property that has a deer feeding station on it where there's spilled grain or whatever, there's going to be a steady flow of coons coming in. When we're doing our camera surveys in the fall where we're putting corn out, you know, with the camera, um, do our, our, our deer camera surveys, coons are going to pour to that corn. If, if you're not doing that, we do what we call pre-baiting. I can go around as I drive through a property. Every time I cross a culvert pipe where a creek or something goes under, I can throw out some cat food um, or, or cracked corn or whatever. Coons are going to find it. They're going to start coming there every night. Once I have them coming to that spot, if I have a deer feeder or a camera station and I have a picture and there's 10 coons on it, I'll catch I'll catch eight of the 10 in two nights. And, wow. and what we do... We do what we call gang setting. We use DP traps, which is, um, you know, pretty much what's called the dog-proof traps. Right, um, right. And we do what we call gang setting. You know, if I've got, if I've got eight or ten coons coming to this spot, uh, whether it's a deer feeder or camera survey or where I've been pre-baiting them, um, if they're coming here, I'm not going to put one trap out and take ten nights to catch them. I'm going to put six, seven traps there. And, try to catch four or five every night. Um, if you go on my Facebook page and go back to the trapping pictures, you'll see some of it. You'll see some pictures where I've got like six coons and possums lined up in a row, each one sitting there in a trap. Well, mm-hmm. that's where we're doing that. Well, if there's ten coons coming there and I catch four or five, well, in two nights, I will call it 80% of them. And I pull up and, you know, do some else. Well, we can easily catch a hundred off of a property in, in a week. So it's not real time consuming. You know, I can run those traps in an hour in the morning, run them, re, you know, rebate them, reset them, and go. And in a, in a week, I can remove a hundred nest presents. And then I do it again in the fall, remove a hundred more. So you start taking two hundred nest predators off of a property. Um, it has a very positive impact on turkey nest. Now, Mark. I actually just walked a property uh, from a, a friend of mine, Corey, a uh, listener of the podcast. He actually, as well, is taking a bunch of coons off his property up here with um, those dog-proof tracks, some cat food, same way you're doing it. Now, how many of those do you have to be running per 10 acres, 40 acres to make a difference? Have you figured that out? No, I don't do it on a per acre. Like I said, I just... We don't go and sit all around the – again, I try to congregate them so I'm, I can catch eight or ten or whatever at one spot. So I'm not setting so many per acre or whatever. I just – depending on the size of the property. Again, if it's a property, again, in the south, you know, you have a lot of deer feeders where people feed deer. Um, and coons are naturally attracted here because of the spilled grain and, and all that. So um, – if I got deer, I'll set I'll set it every one of the deer feeders and catch them. If it's like like I said, when we do a camera survey in the fall and we've been baiting, you know, putting corn out in front of the camera for 14 days to do this survey before the season comes in, I'm gonna have a bunch of coons and possums. And as soon as as soon as the survey's over, the very next morning I'm out there setting traps because I know those coons are coming that night and I'm you know I'm gonna wear them out. And again, if it's a property that just for some reason doesn't have any of those, we'll do what I call pre-baiting. Um, just I, I tell you what, uh, you can do a lot of times take a five-gallon bucket with a lid on it and 
fill it with cat food or corn or a mixture of corn and cat food. Uh, if you want to keep the deer out of it, you can use cat food, dry cat food. Drill a couple small holes in the bottom and tie that five-gallon bucket to a tree so nothing can, you know, roll through the woods. And drill some holes in the bottom where that cat food will come out. And sprinkle a little sardine juice or whatever around. The coons will find it. And in a while, you will have eight or ten coons coming to that five-gallon bucket to get that cat food. And once you have them there, just come in and in about two nights, you catch them. And like I said, I can, I can remove 80% of them off of a property in a week. Wow. Now, if, if, you look at, if you look at my profile picture, I think you put it on your Facebook page today. There's, I'm kneeled down and I got. Yeah, I've never seen anything stuff. like it, Mark. Yeah, you got a bunch of coons there. There's, there's a bunch. There's like 30 coons and I think two coyotes and a fox or something like that. But that's one night's catch. And, and that's, that's me, you know, to me in my business, time is money. I got so much I have to do and get done. Well, I can't spend all day running track. Well, if I can run an hour or so in the morning, and that's the cool thing about gang setting, where instead of me having 10 different locations with one trap, I've got one location with 10 traps. It saves me time. It saves landowner money, and I can go there and get it done. And, and that's the way in that picture. That was one morning, about an hour, hour and a half, because I had some coyotes set down. That's why the coyotes in there. But it's about an hour, hour and a half, and I and, you know, hour and a half, hour and a half in the morning, I removed 30 nest predators just like that off of there. And I can say, we'll do that. And, and I'll have a hundred of them gone and then we'll do it again in the fall. And, and if you start removing 200 nest predators off the property every year, you'll watch your turkey numbers go up. That's amazing. I've never heard of that style of trapping. And I think uh, the fact that you can do all that in a morning or two is, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, well, those dog-proof traps are pretty efficient. Yeah, they are. And you can set up. I can jump out of the truck, push my earth anchor in the ground to anchor the trap, have it baited within about a minute. So I can jump out of the truck and set, you know, six or eight, ten of them in about, you know, ten, twelve minutes and be back in the truck and going. And then the next morning, you know, whatever amount of coons are possible to have, I just dispatch them, throw them in the truck, rebate them real quick, and and go on, and like I said, about an hour, hour, hour and a half in the morning, you can you can do it. So, you know, for seven, ten hours worth of work in a week, you've removed a hundred nest predators. Now, you're also removing the the raccoons. How much damage do they do to uh, some of your food plots or, or corn, for instance? We had a guy named Pat today ask that question. Um, if you're planting cornfields, I mean, you're helping your food plots out too, right? Well, oh, exactly. You know, here, you know, if if, if you plant a uh, – down here, we you got to realize, too, down here we have a, a high deer density because we have so much, you know, rural timberland. We have a lot of deer compared to a lot of other states. They're not concentrated as like they are, you know, up north, but we have a lot of deer. So um, you, you plant a small, you know, three- or four-acre cornfield as a food plot, not only are the deer hammering it, but you've got every squirrel, coon, and possum there is coming out of the woods feeding on it. And, and that's why deer feeders have gotten so big in the south because it, they're more efficient to where um, guys can go out and, and, and buy feeders and, and feed corn that way in the fall. 
and they're not feeding every songbird and squirrel and possum and all that uh, in the woods. But, yeah, they, they <laughs> coons get destroyed. The worst thing about coons is they love that corn when it's in what we call the milk stage where it's still soft right, and, right. And, and sweet, like the sweet corn stage would be. Well, that's coons will just go just hammer it down. Well, hadn't even had a chance to make for a food plot yet, and they, they ruin it. So, you know, coons. I don't like coons being on my property for any reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. Well, I think we uh, – I just learned how to take care of raccoons and coons a lot faster than I, I would have normally. That's amazing. Um, I mean, they, I didn't realize they did so much damage to the, the turkey nest too, so that's huge. Oh, and, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, studies that have been done in the south that have shown uh, – Nest predators, coons, possums, skunks, that have have removed seventy percent of the turkey nest on a property. So, I mean, you think you're losing you're losing seventy percent of your possible turkey folks before they even hatch out because because of mm-hmm. that. Well, like I said, if I can go out and prebait form or whatever, get them coming to a spot, and I can go, you know, I can catch you know eight of them at a spot in two mornings. Well, I mean that. You just don't realize how much, again, you think where I said I removed 200 of them and then think that there's turkey eggs on the ground for 40 days throughout the nesting period, how many opportunities those 200 predators would have to destroy that nest. Oh, yeah. Wonder, wonder any of them make it at all. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, that's crazy. I have a question. Getting back towards the the deer stuff uh, kind of what we tend to gravitate towards on on this show um what do you recommend as a go-to strategy or habitat plan for the regular joe the small property owner say it's uh I mean, we kind of already covered if it's an old forest, what you're supposed to do there with a burn or a thinning. Say it's uh, an old clear cut that's grown up, and you just have a, a blank slate, if you will, of a thicket. And what are some of your go-to, I don't want to say secrets, but like uh, things that, okay, number one, do this. Number two, do this. What could you say is more of a... Um, an idea, not quite blanket statement because everything's different, but just just the main couple couple go to strategies. I took way too well, long to ask that of, question. By the way, sorry. One of the things that I tell landowners right off the bat is put your food plots where your best soil is. Don't put them somewhere because you already have an opening there. If you have the ability to create a new food plot, choose your very best soils. Um, not just because there's, oh, well, I got an opening here, so I'm going to make food. But now, if that's all your, that's the only opportunity you have, yes, stick with it. But you got to realize, you know, you might be planting this field for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So if you're going to be putting inputs here, why not use your very best soils? So determine your best soils and use those for your food plot if possible. Another thing I tell people all the time is, don't base it on how many acres you have. Base it on what you can afford to do right. And when I say that is don't say, well, I've got X amount of acres I need to plant, or I've got X amount of acres to do this. Say, I've got X amount of dollars that I can spend 
and that will allow me to do this many acres right. If I if I've got the the, the amount of money to plant, uh, let's say I have ten acres of opening, but I, and I've got enough resources, money to plant five acres right or ten acres halfway, do the five acres right. You know, so take what money you have and and say. I can plant this many acres, and I can lime it, I can fertilize it, I can plant it, I can use herbicides, do whatever, and I can do this right instead of, and you know, that's where guys all the time skimp on lime and stuff like that, and, and you, you you shot yourself in the foot before you even got started. So do, do it right or don't do it. Um, another thing is I tell people all the time before they put a food plot in, figure out how I'm going to hunt this. Just because you have an opening doesn't make that a good spot if you can't get to it and leave it without spooking deer and hunt it correctly. So before you even start putting a disc in the ground or take a soil sample, look at it and say, how am I going to hunt this without spooking deer? Because that's another thing with a lot of the landowners that I work with, we're trying to kill four, five, and six-year-old bucks, which is an entirely different world than two- and three-year-old bucks. So... You know, I'm hunting, I'm trying to get a guy to kill one of the smartest animals in the woods. And so I, I have to know from the minute he steps on that property until he goes home, how we're going to keep him from spooking that deer. Yeah, that's really important. I'm glad you brought that up about uh, access. Because uh, a lot of times we go into an open woodlot and we think, wow, there's an easy opening for us to make a food plot here. And it's it's nowhere near set up for the deer movement or good access, like you said. Um, and, and again, if you, if you don't have the money to create a food plot or whatever, you have to do the best you can with what, the, you know, the hands you've been dealt. But if you do have that opportunity, think, use your best soils, use it, think about where the sun's going to shine, where you're going to get the best growth, you know, those kind of things. Because if you're going to be pouring, you know, money into this plot for 10, 15, 20 years, you want to get your best result. So pick your very best area to produce that crop. Definitely. So let's say we got our perfect spot now, Mark, and we found the best soil, we found the best access. What other tips can you give us for uh, holding and killing mature deer on smaller properties? Because I'm only working with 40 acres. Jared also has a small property, and a lot of the listeners here are working with a lot smaller stuff than you're probably used to dealing with. But what can now, we do I'll to you, hold and kill more mature deer? I'll tell you this. We, we deal with some large landowners, but I have clients that have 40 acres. Okay. I, I, I mean, I have clients that have 40 acres. I have clients that have 80 acres. I have a lot of small landers. And the biggest thing is, is... I, I tell people all the time, if you ride around, I don't care if you're in Illinois, Iowa, down south, you ride around in July and August in the evenings, and what do you see? You see all these deer out in the soybean fields, guys sitting on the side of the road with their binoculars, watching them and all that, and those deer just right out there. And all of a sudden, about September or so, it, they disappear. You don't see them. Right, right. But, well, how come they've been coming out in these fields for four months? didn't care, you know, nothing. And all of a sudden, about this time, they disappear. You know, it's because the hunters aren't on the road watching them anymore. They're in the woods. They're starting to put their stands up and do their thing. And those deer know right away, okay, different time of year, 
it's survive, you know, survival mode now, and and they know it. And the biggest thing with small property owners they have to understand is they can't let that deer know they are on the property. Amen. I don't care. I don't care if it's the clinging of the chain around a gate or the slamming of a door on the truck. Anything. And I tell people this all the time. Picture yourself living in a third world country where when you got up in the morning, you didn't just get out and go to work. From the minute you woke up, you had to worry about somebody trying to shoot you. A sniper. When you walked to your car or your truck in the morning, you wouldn't just go strolling out there. You'd be looking and hiding behind this because you had to survive. Every minute of your life would be based on survival. Well, that's the way it is for a deer. And if you had to worry about surviving every day, little things that didn't matter to you now would matter to you big time. And and that might be a cold way to put it, but think about it that way. If every day you had to keep somebody, a sniper or something, for getting you, every little teeny detail would matter to you. And that's why to a four-, five-, six-year-old buck, that clinging of the chain on the gate, the slamming of the truck door, back in the four-wheeler or golf cart, whatever, off the trailer, and it making a clinking noise or whatever, that becomes something different, and those deer know it. And a lot of people don't realize that, but they do. Those deer know the sounds that are supposed to be there, and they know the sounds that aren't. And the, and I tell people this all the time, you ruin your hunt before it even got started. Yes, and That's a great analogy. Great analogy. One of the things that we do is we set up a map of every property, and I don't care if it's 40 acres, 80 acres, or 4,000 acres. I set up a map, and I told you before, before we set up a food plot, we determine how are we going to hunt this plot. Not just where are we going to put a stand, but how are we going to access it. Because if I'm traveling to that stand, even if I'm on a golf cart being in stealth mode and the wind is right for that stand, but on my travel to that stand, I've alerted half the deer on my property because my scent is filtering down through the woods. Again, I just ruined my hunt before it started. So just little things like that of realizing the hunt starts the minute you get to the property until you leave it, not when you're in the stand, because again, if you're trying to kill a two-year-old buck, you know, okay, don't worry about it. Well, when you're trying to kill four, five, and six-year-old buck, it's a totally different game, and you're hunting an animal that is thinking about one thing, and that's survival. So all those little things, and and I told you that property we kill forty to forty-five um, mature bucks off of it every year. It's because of things like that. Learning, we we. We went from people riding around four-wheelers to putting uh, mufflers on their four-wheelers and then and then, then golf carts and doing everything, you know, stealth mode. And that's, I have landowners right now that have learned the process of what they have to do. And when they get to the property, if they get out and their guest starts talking, they'll go shh, and make them be quiet. If they realize now how important it is to be totally Quiet, no noise, no nothing. Not let those deer know you're on the property. Right. 
So we got that covered as far as hunting and access. What can we do before the hunting season? As far as what? I mean, as far as improving the habitat for trying to keep mature bucks with uh, within the boundaries of a smaller property. Well, one of the things with the smaller property is you have to realize that, and if you're talking about a property that's 40 acres, you have to realize that deer is not going to grow up, live, and die just on your property. Right, right. He's going to use the neighbor's property too. So that's why you have to do two things. You have to provide what your neighbor isn't. So, you know, if you have a neighbor who's got a 200-acre soybean field, you can't compete with that. You have to provide, but yet when they combine those soybeans, it becomes a desert throughout the winter. Okay, yeah, he's got the summertime food factory, but the minute that combine leaves, it becomes a desert, which means I'm going to supply the wintertime. I'm supplying what he's not. Um, the same thing. How is how is he hunting his property? If he's if they're hunting their property and spooking their deer, that's just what I want them to do. Because I want them to run them onto my. I want to be super stealth mode on mine to where his deer learn that my property is the safe place. And the biggest thing is with a small property is to have as much sanctuary cover as you can get. You know, you're you're not on a small property. You're just not going to overwhelm the deer with food plot acreage and all that and stuff. So sanctuary cover becomes very important no mark it's it's amazing you know i started this podcast thinking it's a, it's a bunch of stuff i don't know nothing about and then we get to this portion and it's the same exact thing as up here i mean you're literally speaking you know the, the same language um i was just talking to my dad the other day we were putting up these these blind platforms and I explained to him how I don't walk past the certain threshold into my property ever. Like it's where the food is, it's where they feel safe, it's where they eat. And I don't literally, I literally do not cross this line to go north towards that part of the property. I've maybe stepped on it three times since I own the joint and you just like kind of, you know, not really believe in me. And I'm like, these deer will bust you 24 hours later when you're home the next day and, and they'll bust you they'll they'll pick you out they'll know where you're at and and i couldn't agree more to the fact that the, the sanctuary aspect the the stealth aspect the staying out of there the not clanging metal around i mean that's the same way we do it here and that's the same way guys do it in iowa and i just think it's it's funny how universal that portion of, of it is the smaller your property is the smaller your property is the more important it becomes that you know where every deer is so that you don't spook them when you're on your property when you've got a four thousand acre property which some of our clients do deer can and and, and you know thirty five hundred acres of it is is pine plantation with five foot native forage on it and a deer can be laid anywhere on the property you know what I mean? It, it, it's not as big as when you've got a 40-acre property and you go there with the wind wrong and you can scoop the entire 40 acres within five minutes, yeah. it becomes much more important, much more important. And that's why it's also more important to know where the deer are and where they're coming from. You know, are they actually bedding on you? 
and coming to you and, and you see your pit, or they're actually betting on the neighbor. Well, the last thing I want to do is, is at any point spook that transition area between the neighbor and me where they're coming through because if I do, I've lost my deer. They yeah, won't keep coming to travel. Anymore. Yep. Right. Yep. So knowing where your deer are and which what, what their travel pattern is, it becomes, the smaller the property is, the more important it becomes. But I don't I don't care if you're if you're hunting four thousand acres or forty acres. The, not letting the deer know you are there, because again you're talking about an animal that every day of its life is, is survival and learning what keeps it alive. And, and the stupid ones die first. So that four, five, six year old buck, you know, he spent four, five, six years learning to stay alive, and, and that that clanging of that chain on that gate, anything that lets you know you're on the property. That's what that's what shuts him down. Well, no, that all makes perfect sense. Um, moving on a little bit, kind of, I wanted to kind of leave this open to you. Now, what I want to cover what your end game is, what your your goals are. Say I hired you, or Brian, or or, or some other gentleman hired you. What do you have to accomplish or get through to someone's head? That when you leave that day, you're thinking, "All right, that that was a success." You know, I I explain this, that, etc. What what makes you sleep at night? What you know? What works? Well, when I when I first step on a property, the first thing I ask the landowner or leaseholder is, you know, what is your goals? What are you, what's your objective? What's your goals? And then I'm going to tell you whether they're obtainable or not. You know. You know, if you tell me, well, I want to kill Boone Crockett deer every year, okay, well, we need to, you know, this just isn't going to happen. But I'm going to look at the habitat. I'm going to tell you what I think can be done with your property and whether you think your goal is attainable. And if if you're willing to do what I say to work towards that, we can get – I won't tell you something that I don't think I can achieve. I know I know what I've done throughout the years and what I can what I can accomplish. So when I tell you, okay, I think we can do this on your property, I believe that's attainable. Attainable, but you have to adhere to the entire program. If I give you a management program and you do 60% of it, you're going to get 60% of the result. You have to. There, a lot of people. I'll be honest with you. We put up these pictures of these big. And they might not be big for the Midwest, but, you know, 150-inch deer in the south is a big deer. But, you know, we put pictures of deer like that on our Facebook page, and everybody wants to know what we plan, what do we plan. And they just don't understand it's not that simple. It's just not as simple as just, you know, if I, if I knew what you were planning, I'd have 150-inch deer, too. It's just not that. It's the whole plan, the entire program. Step one is just as important as step nine. Every one of these things, if you don't do them, you're going to have limited success. So I, I want I want a land that when I when I leave a property, whether I'm talking with the landowner or his manager or, or whoever, a lot of times I can tell when I leave there whether he's going to have success or not, just by the way you know by the way they talk. If they have that passion and I know they're going to do all this, they're going to send me some pictures of some you know big bucks you know down the road. So. That's what makes me feel good, knowing that there's there's somebody when I give them a plan, they're they're going to implement that plan and, and do it right because I want to look good, and the only way I'm going to look good is if they implement that plan uh, that I give them. So, and then once they implement it, and you know, I 
I have a young boy last year. I, I don't know. You scraped the money together to hire us, and, and we went and he had a 700-acre lease, and he sent me a picture, you know, last uh, fall, the biggest buck he's ever killed in his life. Heck that yeah, makes buddy. Me, when I go to bed at night, that makes, that makes me feel real good, you know? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And and I guess the the flip side to that, what are the maybe first one or two mistakes that you see people make? Uh, you may have kind of covered it, but just to kind of reestablish, what's what's number one mistake you see guys make? The biggest mistake I see is one in the food plots of not again doing it right. Take the soil sample, see what you need to amend your soil, getting lime down. Um, you know, doing the whole program at a time. Don't just, you know, well, I, I bought this $5 a pound seed, and it's a miracle worker. You know, <laughs> it'll, it'll work, you know. And and so do it right. Find what works. I, I, I say all the time, site-specific. You know, don't show me what that seed did in Iowa. Show me what it did in South Alabama. You know, so find what works for your soils in your region of the country, what works best, and 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 use it, do the right thing of taking a soil test, liming, doing all that. Do the right thing when it comes to hunting. It might be a little extra work, but not trying to spook your deer. Same thing with your habitat. If, if you can manipulate your habitat, do what needs to be done. And again, there is no magic bean. It's an entire process. And the more you do of that program and that process, the better the results you'll have. And again, it all comes down to your passion of how much you're willing to do to, to, to see it through. I like it. All right, Mark. So uh, what are your fall plans and what type of hunting are you going to be doing? you get right into the deer hunting or you get into anything else before that? No, our, our next, well, we our dove season, you know, comes in here on September 8th. Um, and then in, in, in Alabama now, um, uh, we have some properties we manage in South Carolina, and this is hard to believe, but the low country of South Carolina, which is the lower part of the state, rifle deer season is already in. Rifle deer season opens up there August 15th. So wow. they're already, you know, they're already deer hunting. They're deer hunting in short pants and snake boots. But, um, here in Alabama, um, our rifle season doesn't come in until the, the week of Thanksgiving. So, okay. right, the next, the, I, we started spreading a bunch of lime yesterday. My, my sons and I plant five to six hundred acres of food plots every year. No way. Yeah, a lot of, Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, so you, you think, you know, a guy that plants two acres or three acres or whatever, we plant five to six hundred acres of food plots every year on the property that, that we actually manage. So as I told some, I did a radio show this morning, I told the guys, like, from now until February, I will be wide open every day, you know, doing something. And as soon as we get done spreading lime and fertilizer, then we go to planting. And at the same time we're planting, I'm running, we're running camera surveys, you know, uh, Pulling camera car, running a 14-day camera survey on the property, and then about the time you get that done, the season opens. And once the season opens, um, we spend, me and my two sons, we spend most of our time guiding um, other hunters on, pro on properties that are 
very intensively managed and the landowner only wants certain buckshot and that type of thing, we sit with a lot of their guests and and kind of give them the okay or not on a buck or a management buck or whatever. So sure. now till February, we'll be wide open. So do you hunt anymore at all, Mark, or are you too busy these days? Well, I'll be honest with you, I... I I shoot I, I I hunt. Let me put it that way. I hunt, but when I'm hunting, I have management in mind. If if there's a um you know on our larger properties, as I said, when we manage them, we have certain bucks we call them management bucks. They're just older bucks with lower quality antlers that need to be removed, and the landowner's not worried about those deer. But I know they have to get going. Um, there's nothing I hate worse than a five or six year old bully buck. He might only have six points or seven points in his, his rack. He might might score 120 inches, whatever. But he's a bully, and he fights everything on the fight. Well, that that six year old management buck might run off a three year old 140 inch 10 point that has all kinds of potential just because he's a bully. Well, I want him going. I don't want to feed him, and I don't want him running off another younger buck with a lot more potential. So I want those deer gone. The landowner's not worried about shooting them or putting his tag on one of them. So a lot of times um, we have the green light on some of these properties to go out and remove those kind of deer. And if, and if it is, then I'll, that's when I, when I hunt on my own, I'm, I'm looking to remove, you know, what we would call a management deer or an inferior deer. Uh, follow-up question. Do you ever need any sure shooting Michigan or Pennsylvania boys to come help take out the management deer. <laughs> if I had a dollar for everybody who said that to me, I'd be retired in Montana right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I learned something else about you. You want to retire to Montana as well. I'll, I'll tell you one thing I do need help with. I need help with people taking coons and possums and coyotes out of traps. Okay, well, how, how many coons do I have to take out to come shoot a management buck down in Alabama? I'd love to do it. No, that that's all good, man. That's that's a pretty cool situation where the only thing you're hunting for is, you know, old freak nasty mature buck who's just a bully and, and beat up. Those bucks are the ones that tell the stories. I mean, you look at their well, rack, and, and, and it's, it's so cool. My wife and I, my wife's a big hunter, too. We have, I think we got like 25 or 30 deer mounted from back in that stage, you know, when I was mounting a bunch of deer and all that and stuff. But to me now, the trophy is the jawbone and the history I have with that deer. Yeah. You know, if I've been watching that deer for three or four years on camera, you know what I mean, and, I, and I've got a history with him, and I know that's a five- or six-year-old buck, and I don't care if he's only got 120 inches of antler on his head when he walks out. He is one of the smartest animals in the woods, and if I killed him, I outsmarted him. Amen. So that, that, that's my reward. I'm, I'm, I'm not mounting any more deer. You know what I mean? Now, I have an antler tree on my porch where I have a bunch of big racks hanging on and stuff, but deer that have meant stuff to me, but... but that's my thrill now is to, to hunt that deer. I don't care what's on his head. I, I'm hunting him because I know he's one of the smartest animals in the woods. And, you know, that's my, that's my challenge. And if, if the landowner gives us the green light to go get him, that's fine with me. That, that's, that's just what I want to do. It's a challenge. You know, it's like trapping coyotes. It's a challenge, you know. Definitely.
No, that's awesome. Um, we're kind of coming up on some time here. Now, I'd be willing to talk all night. Is there anything else that you want to cover that we haven't asked you uh, that maybe you thought of that you want to get out there? Oh, there's about 100 things. Oh, shoot. <laughs> You know, this is this is no lie. I go to somebody's property if I'm doing a consulting job, and and I promise them eight to ten hours. I'll be on your property for eight to ten hours, and it never fails when evening comes. It's the landowner's like, man, there's so much more I would like. I was like, it goes fast, doesn't it? You know, you yeah. think eight or ten hours of talking, you know, you cover everything, but you don't. You know, you, you just don't. You know. No, I hear you. The the benefit of doing something like this is, you know, I I or Brian or our listeners, and we can go back and listen to this three, four times to make sure, you know, we, we get it all. That's what's uh, so cool. So, yeah, I mean, if you have anything else you want to mention, um, definitely want to hear about how, we're, how we can find you, how we're going to, you know, push you out to the listeners and all that good stuff. We'll, we'll get to that, but if there's anything that we've, you know, skipped over being from the north and and whatnot. Please go ahead and, and feel free to dive into. Well, the, the again, being from the south, things are things are a little bit. You know, we don't have to worry about things like winter kill, you know, and stuff like that. Um, you know, die offs from that kind of stuff. Um, in the south, it's entire. Like I said, I've spent time in West Kentucky, Illinois. It's just entirely different concept to where you know you put a map on the wall and it's a two thousand acre block and it all looks the same. It's just nothing but a you know pine plantation. So you have to learn learn a different uh, a different way of hunting. And um, you know, a lot of times in those situations, you don't even hunt in the morning. If those deer are using the food plots at night. And the minute he steps out of that food plot, he's in a block of 500 acres that he's going to, you know, walk through planted pines and bed down, and you, you'll never see him. You can't hunt that deer in the morning, unless it's the rut. Now, during the rut, you know, but when that deer's in a feeding pattern, you can't hunt it. And a lot of guys say, well, I'm at the camp, you know, I'm going to hunt, you know. A lot of times you're better off to just stay home. I'd rather hunt one or two times when it's perfect than five times when it's not perfect. Oh, so, yeah, you know, yeah, if I, sure. you, you give me two shots at that buck when I know he's on his feet, I'm going to kill him. But, you know, if you give me five, maybe, you know, I'm not. So, you know, if you got this five-year-old buck, he, it's not the rut. It's, he's in a feeding pattern. He's in a two-acre clover field surrounded by planted pine. As soon as that sun starts to just be, or even before, he steps out of that field, he's He's in a, a jungle of native forage, and he's going to stay in it until he goes and beds down. You're not going to kill that buck in the morning. So your only chance is to kill him in the evening. And, again, that's why human intrusion factor. We want that deer not knowing. I don't want the – it goes back to that thing of August, you know, guys driving around looking at all the bucks out in the bean field. I don't want my deer knowing whether it's August, September, October, or November. Because nothing has changed as far as the human intrusion factor. So if he'll step out into that clover field 30 minutes before dark and I don't do anything wrong, opening day, evening, he should step out there 30 minutes before dark. So that's kind of the, 
difference in the south here that, again, we don't have the open hardwoods. And, and again, there's places we do. You get into the upstate in the mountains, you know, you have some of that. But for the most part, in these pine plantation areas, <coughs> excuse me, um, it's, there's so much cover that, you know, a five-year-old buck, if he doesn't want to be seen, he won't. And, and so you just have to choose the right time to hunt him. Again, it's not like a 20-acre hardwood woodlot in Illinois where, you know, I know where he's going. I know he's going to be this or whatever. I mean, down here, if they don't want to be seen, they can. We have, we have bucks every year on our camera surveys that we know are there. We know they're there. And even as good as we hunt, they're just never seen. They're just never seen because they don't want to be, you know? No, that's, I mean, it seems like you might relate to a little bit kind of, Brian, where you're from. Like, we have some big woods up north in Michigan, and I still haven't figured out really how to tackle that. But the big woods in, you know, northern Minnesota or PA, um, it seems the same kind of thing. I mean, other terrain features that you guys use, or is it all flat? I mean. Well, one thing you have to realize down here, too, when we say, you know, big woods, not only is it a big block of timber, maybe 500, 1,000, 2,000 acres, but if it's been thin and burned, and as we go back before about talking in native forest, the entire understory of that 1,000 or 2,000 acres might be native vegetation that's five or six feet tall. So oh, that's what I'm saying about when that buck steps out of that clover field 30 minutes before daylight into that pot, if it's that type of habitat, which it is on a lot of places, you're not going to see him. Hmm. And if you go if you go in there trying to see him, you will spook every deer on the property. So that's why I'm saying it, it, even though you might, you know, and I'm thinking about where I used to hunt in the mountains of Pennsylvania, you know, it was large blocks of timber, but it was mostly hardwood timber to where it was more open. You could see, you know, out the, right. in the south. Once this timber has had a first or second thinning and it and that sunlight hits, then it becomes a sea of like I said, native vegetation on it to where it's just a jungle. So yeah. he pretty much has a, a thousand acre bedding area. He could be We don't have that understood. No, we don't. Yep. So to that question, say there's a guy who has access to I don't know what the public land situation is down there, but maybe it's some some Timberland, some some wood, uh, you know, some some wood harvest land, uh, timber company owned. How do you go about doing that? So you can't do any habitat work. Um, what would be a good hunting strategy? Uh, you know, we're all coming up on deer season here. How would you address a blank slate in terms of, you know, the just uh, the monoculture of a of a huge three thousand acre pine plantation with five-foot understory across the whole thing. I mean, are you going in there and baiting and throwing cameras all around to kind of take an inventory, or what would you do in a situation like that where it's just uh, all well, the same? Well, if it's, if it's, if it's a, a situation where, let's say, like some of our clients, where they lease the land, it's timber company land, excuse me, they lease it, and they can't do any habitat manipulation, it comes down to the, the timber companies will normally allow leaseholders to plant the log decks, which is where they, you know, 
pull the timber and load the trucks and everything, which is usually about an acre or so opening. Um, the leaseholders are allowed to plant those. Well, then it becomes that factor of, okay, I got a thousand acres of, of land here. This is, you know, the food plot that he's got to be using and I'm going to hunt it when it's right. And when it's not right, I'm not going to hunt it and set up in, in, in that way I'm, I'm going to hunt it. And again, as far as the, the, the morning hunting, you're pretty much set up hoping you know where he's going to cross a road. You know, and, and again, if, you, if you've never been here, it's hard to picture in your mind, but the, you might have a thousand acre block of timber and it's huge understory and your roads are your only openings and, and you, you can kind of drive your roads and you see where the major crossings are. And another cool thing is because it's an opening, there's sunlight hitting there. So you'll start to see some high quality vegetation on the sides of those roads and you see a lot of browsing. Uh, along there too, but you know, catching that buck if he has to cross a road between where he's leaving and where he's bedding, setting up and hunting him that way. But wow, again, it depends on what you're hunting. Are you trying to kill a two year old or are you trying to kill a four, five, or six year old? If you're trying to kill a four, five, six year old and you start walking in those woods again where no one's pinned all year long and all of a sudden here's this guy, you know, you're walking in the woods putting up cameras and doing all that. Well, guess what? You just click his survival mode, yep. and everything he's doing is, is, is going to change. And he he just became almost unkillable. Yeah, you uh, you tipped him off. Yep, yep. And, and and a buck, a five or six year old buck that knows you're there, he's 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 almost unkillable. Again, I'd rather hunting two days that were perfect than five days that it wasn't the right setup. No. It, I'll tell you what, I agree with that. Um, one thing that young kids has forced me to do is, uh, you know, hunt smarter and not harder. And uh, cross that with the fact that most of my deer on the wall were killed on a first sit. You, you start to think about things like that. And when I hear guys like you say that, it you know, light goes off in your head. Like, yeah, duh. I mean... Can't just go tromp around in there. You gotta the do it when the time's is, right and surprise them. We have a lot of landowners that, like, like I said, in South Carolina season comes in August fifteenth. Here in Alabama, it comes in the week of Thanksgiving. But either way, we have a lot of landowners that kill some of their best bucks off the property the first week of the season. The rut's not in yet, you know, anything like that. But yet they do it because we have left it without that uh, human intrusion factor. Like I said, that that buck doesn't know based on human factor whether it's August or November. So all he knows is he comes to this food plot every evening and he's not getting bothered. And he finds what he wants and he goes back. So opening day, evening, if the wind's right, the same thing should happen. And, it, and I'm not going to say it's easy, but you can train those deer to come to that same spot every day as long as you do not mess them up and you slide in there when it's perfect and he's going to walk out and you harvest him. And, and a lot of our landowners kill their big bucks that first week, a lot of them first evening or two if the wind is right because that buck has not been bothered all summer or fall. And, 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 and that's another thing on these properties when we're working 
um, by two o'clock, I'm out of there. I'm not, I'm not out there running cameras or, or uh, planting or whatever at, you know, four thirty, five o'clock in the evening. At, at two o'clock, unless something terrible happens, at two o'clock, I'm out of there because I want that evening period to just be as calm, nothing going on whatsoever, and let them, let them learn that, that it's okay to come out before dark during that period. And now is that even during like uh, during the off season too, like say midsummer, or are you talking more when it's getting closer to season? Now during the summer, each property is different. I mean, and it depends on what we're doing. But when it gets to like this time of year here now, um, I'm I'm getting lime spread, fertilizer spread, all that kind of stuff. You know, mornings, midday, and everything. And about two o'clock, unless I've had a bad week or whatever. I want to be getting off the property, yeah, and and get out of there and let it let it settle down because first of all, deer don't forget overnight. You know, they remember, and I, I I've just seen it happen way too many times where we've had the success on these properties of where they're left alone and those deer aren't bothered. You come in the first evening or two and you kill them, yeah, and it, it just it just it just works. <laughs> No, and, and you know they they say a lot of big bucks are killed early season on their, maybe not. I mean they are summer patterns, but maybe not um, around Thanksgiving where you're, you're at in Alabama. But point being is, don't go in till the time is right, the wind is right, everything's right, and then surprise them. Right? I mean it's, it's a common theme there. Um, don't let them know you're there. Don't alert them, and make sure when you do, um, you know you're you're drawn back or scopes on them. Yep. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you the guy goes to camp and the wind's not right or whatever. Well, I'm here. i got to hunt somewhere. Well, no, you don't. You don't have to. You know, <laughs> right. if, 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 all, if all you're going to do is spook and, and screw up, well, you're better off to watch a football game. Yeah, right. You know? and, and what you do today might have a direct effect on what happens next weekend. So, I mean, be it positive or negative, what you do today could have a very big effect on the results you have have next weekend. And, and, and again, it comes back to that human intrusion factor. You're hunting one of the smartest animals in the woods. Yeah, discipline and go find some public land to hunt if it's not all going to work for you. Yeah. That, that's right. That's right. And, of course, you know, I grew up as a kid. We, we hunted Pennsylvania to where – when the sun came up on opening day, if you could look around and not see another orange jacket, you felt lucky. You know what I mean? Well, that's an entirely different situation there. You know, public land in Pennsylvania, you're just hunting pressured deer. You know, deer that are being moved up. We're, we're, we're talking about the south here. And, and that's one thing about having long seasons. You know, a lot of the deer seasons in the south, rifle season is going to be two, three months long. So it's not like you have these hordes of hunters that are out there for a week, you know, just the season's longer so you can spread your hunting time out and you have larger properties to where, you know, you can hunt deer that if you do it right, you can hunt deer that aren't fresh. Sure. Now, Mark, I have one more question for you. Um, Have you ever – do you know who Dan Infault is? I know – I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Did you know of his style of hunting where where you hunt a buck out of his bed 
Do you guys do that much down there? Find out exactly where he beds, sneak in on him, and try to catch him as he's exiting his okay. bedroom? You guys ever do that? Well, again, and, and, and again, you know, every place is different, but for most of the landowners we work with, you've got to realize the habitat we're hunting in the south to where if you have, you know, this, you, ha you have to picture this of a large block of, of, of 25 year old pine trees that have been thinned and the understory is five or six feet tall of native vegetation. You know, every single inch of it is possible bedding area. Mm. You know, when you, yeah, you, you, know, you watch white, you watch whitetail properties on TV and, you know, they're doing hinge cutting and this and that to create bedding areas or whatever, you know, and you might have a, a two-acre area here that's possible bedding or this brush straw, picture a thousand acres and every inch of it is a possible bedding area. Well, you're just, you are not going to go in there and hunt that deer in his bedroom because you don't know where his bedroom is. And if you go in there trying to find out, you're going to spook him anyway. Right. So it, it's a different, you know, like I said, that Midwestern hunting to where you know, I know my deer are right here. They're in this block, you know, right here. It's different in the south in these big timbered areas because, again, if you've got a 1,000 acres and every inch of it looks exactly the same, I mean, if they go to my – I tell you what, if you go to my Facebook page, like I said, go back a couple weeks or so. I forget when I put it up, but I put a post up with about seven or eight pictures of habitat, and I uh, – and I – said in there about we these were all done with fire and soil disturbance before March in the March or something. And you'll see it. You'll see just as far as you can see in the distance will be pine trees and ragweed and, and, and broom grass, everything that's, you know, five feet tall, just as far as you can see. And then picture yourself trying to hunt five hundred or a thousand acres of that. Yeah. I, okay, I, so I get you're it. that's tough. Picture, picture yourself just trying to even walk through it. <laughs> you know, walk, walk through it with right. yourself. You know, a, a big hardwood ridge, you know, to where, you, like I said, you can see for 100 yards, you know, you can walk it in a moonlight, in the, in the moonlight almost, you know, just easily trying not to step on a stick or crack it. Right. There's a difference in that and walking through something that you can't see two feet in front of. And, and, and it's not like it's a briar bit, but you, like I said, you've got, you know, giant ragweed can be seven foot tall. So, you know, you've got this sea of native vegetation. And, again, it's excellent fawning cover, bedding cover, and all that. But you are not going to go in there in stealth mode and hunt that. Sure. And, and if you do, you're just going to mess up. So, I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's that's the difference in it. But if so you go on Facebook page and look at those pictures, of it, it'll give you a better idea what I'm talking about. You're just you're looking at a sea of native vegetation. Okay, so so does that look different in the spring? Like spring scouting is so important to us up here in the north because we can get in there before the foliage is back. Sometimes the snow's still on the ground. We could still see beds. We could still see uh, scrapes, and basically it looks exactly like it does towards the end of the season. Does, does that change for you guys in the spring, or are you still dealing with a thicket like that? It's still, it's dead. You know, it's dead and brown, but it's still just as tall as it was. But the cool thing is, with the burning we do, 
when you burn that off, you can see every deer trail, you know, through it and 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 sheds. Oh, oh my wife will. It's nothing for my wife to pick up forty or fifty sheds a year, just you know, walking wow. those burns and things. Um, right. Yeah, I I I gave away at one time. I gave away five hundred shed antlers. One time, I took two pickup truckloads to haul them. I gave five hundred up away. But anyway, that's a long story. But um, you know, when we burn those areas. You know, it, it, it's like you've taken the cover off, and you can see every deer trail and all that. Now, the deer leave it, and they go to the blocks that we didn't burn, and but and then that you know young growth starts back again. But you know that's that's when we, when we burn it. My wife and I will go in there and walk it the next day, just one to find shed antlers. But you can see every little trail and stuff like that. So yeah. So you're not putting a whole lot of uh, time in spring scouting, is that what you're saying? No. I, again, okay. I know with these setups here, and, and again, every property's different, but if we have a good food plot system, I know the deer are bedding pretty much here, and, and, you know, with our cameras on our food plots during the summer, you you, you go on my Facebook page now and look at all the different buck, you know, pictures I put up, but I pretty much know what buck is coming to what food plot. Uh, and then when we do the camera right, survey, right. I'll really, I'll really know it. So, um, I pretty much know what bucks come into what food plot. And so when we want to hunt a certain buck, I know what food plot he's coming to and what wind we got to have and, and that and whether we can hunt him or not. So, um, okay. Now, Mark, you, you mentioned this Facebook page a couple of times. How can our listeners find you? And find the Facebook page and get a hold of you if they uh, love what they heard tonight, which I'm sure they did, and then, uh, you know, want some of your advice. Uh, well, our Facebook page is just uh, Mark Buxton, uh, Southeastern Wildlife Habitat Services. Uh, or you can, most people, I think, just punch in Southeastern Wildlife Habitat Services. And then my son, my one son, he, he's got a kind of a separate consulting business now on the side of his own, and it's called Low Country Wildlife Consulting. Um, and you'll see a bunch of big old deer on there. Yeah, no, your, your Facebook page, say, um, you have a lot of good information on there from what I've looked at before our podcast here, and a lot of big bucks, too. Well, again, really you, nice. you have you know, you got to compare apples to apples. You got to realize too that those deer, you know, they might not be big for the Midwest, but you know, 140, 150 inch deer in the South is a big deer. You know. Hey, they're big to um, a Michigan boy, and I'm pretty sure they're big to yeah, a PA definitely. boy too. Yeah. I mean, we we've got you know we've got landowners that you know they will kill a 150 inch deer every year. You know, I mean, yeah. I actually had this is I mean this is no lie. He he won't do anything with it because he doesn't want personal or people knowing, but I got a landowner killed a 182 um, three years ago. Man. (laughs) And and, and that's in Alabama, but I mean, he won't, I mean, he won't say anything or whatever because he doesn't want people knowing, you know, he's got a heck of a property and stuff, but I mean, we've got people that, you know, They've learned the program. They've learned how to hunt, and we grow them some big bunks, and they kill them. 
and and they've learned that, that like I said before, they've learned that they're better off to hunt a few days when it's perfect than to hunt every day when it's not quite perfect. They, they've learned when they have the most success. You know, when I when I tell them, you know, now's the time to hunt that buck, they go hunt them, and, and a lot of times they kill him. That's the key. So how does somebody know in the southeast if they need your services? How do they know? Yeah, what what would make them say, hey, I should call Mark and get him out here? Well, most of the people we do, and, and like I said, I have I have clients that have 40 acres. We have clients that's got 4,700 acres, you know, just every, you know, so the, the, the size of the acreage doesn't have to do it. it it's more of either somebody, you know, we, we take pride in ourselves as far as not only improving deer, the deer herd itself, but improving people's methods of hunting. You know, it's one thing to grow a big bug. It's another thing to get killed. And so, you know, we, we try to, the fact that we've been dealing with, with mature bucks for 30-some years, we've learned some secrets. And a lot of them I haven't even talked about, you know, tonight, you know, and stuff. But but most of our our people are people that have kind of, I'll say this, they've done it themselves and it's not quite working out for them. And they they want to know what to do to, 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 to get that extra step and, and, and make it. Or maybe they're just not growing the kind of deer that they see on our Facebook page. And, and again, that's why I said about when we step on a property, you tell me what your goal is, and I'll tell you whether it's achievable or not. And okay. you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow smoke, you know, on your whatever. And, and if I don't think it can be done, I'm gonna tell you that. I'm gonna be wasting your time. And, and you know, I, I have not. I had a client that paid me to go around and look at properties for him. He was looking to buy a hunting property, and he paid me to go look at them. And I'd tell him, if you do one, I'd tell him, don't waste your time. You know, it's, it's just not worth it. And, and, and that's what I, So anyway, the guy that, that hires us is usually that guy who wants to get to that upper, that upper echelon or whatever to where he either wants to, to take the quality of his deer herd to another level that he just can't seem to obtain himself, or the guy who wants to just doesn't have what it takes to kill five and six year old bugs. Well, I like that. I think that was well said, and uh, you know, a perfect place to to wrap up. It, it just goes to show that you're a, a no BS kind of guy. You're not going to just you know. So I'll catch up and you know to somebody with a with a white T-shirt. I mean, just if you need me, I'm here. I'll tell you what I think and uh, you know take it or leave it. But it's the way it is, and I, I like that. I like the honesty there. Um, I think For a lot sure. of people can can relate to that. So, well, there can be. There's a lot of money that can be thrown away in this bit, and I tell people all the time. Once I come on your property, and you're going to realize how cheap our consultant fee is because of how much money we save you. You know, just in, in little, especially when it gets to food plots. The amount of money that you can sink in the food plots nowadays is just, can be asked, not, you know, fertilizer's 500 a ton and all that. Yeah, so, yep. you know, we, 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 we end up saving people a lot of money. But as I tell them, I'm not going to lie to you about what you can accomplish on your land because, one, it's going to make you look bad when you don't. 
So if I tell you, yeah, you can grow Boone and Crockett deer every year, and you don't, well, then that looks like God. So I'm going to tell you what you, what I believe you can achieve on your property or what you can't, you know, achieve. And you can take that for where it's worth. Yeah, that's one thing I like that uh, I have a similar philosophy with you, Mark, about the uh, fancy seed. And I don't want to alienate anybody out there. I mean, everybody uses what they're comfortable with. But I go to the local seed company, and I get all my stuff from them. They know what grows good. I've had great success, and uh, it sounds like you go along those lines, too. Well, I, I tell people all the time, I used to be that young kid who didn't know much, you know, before I went to school and then spent 30-some years doing this, I was that young kid who was looking for it, and I got misled a lot, and that, that hurts me when I see people doing that. I mean, you take a, you take any, it's required by law, any bag of seed has to have a seed tag on, on and on, but you flip it up and look at it, it, it's supposed to tell you what else in that bag. Well, you know, a lot of these guys are taking just old run-of-the-mill type clubs that have been around for 25 years and putting some fancy name to them and selling them like they're something special when, when yeah. they're really not. It, 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 that, you know, that post that I put up uh, where all the bucks were on that, there was like 40-some bucks on the side of that barn or whatever that, you know, we killed 20 years ago. And that was the point of that post was a lot of the things that we're using to grow big bucks now in our food plots were the same things we were planting 20 years ago when those bucks were killed. They just don't have that fancy name now. Right. So, and and the only reason they have that fancy name on it is to make it look like you can only buy it from those people and to make the price of a pound about twice, you know, what it should be. Marketing, yeah, for sure. Well, Mark, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, and I just – I'm glad you came on. I thank you for it, and, uh, you know, I'd love to connect again in the future and uh, and talk more with you. It, went, uh, it was a great conversation. I learned a ton, so thank you. A lot of info. Really good. Well, I enjoyed it, and I appreciate it. All right, bye. All right, everybody. Well, we're wrapping that up with Mark Buxton out of Alabama. Brian, what you think, man? I uh, Like I said to Mark, I thought we would be learning a ton, which we did, but I didn't know how much of it would relate. And then towards the end there, it seems it's that same old cat and mouse game with a big buck, you know? Yeah, definitely. A lot of great information. And I was expecting a lot more differences between what we do up here and what they do down there, but it turns out we have a lot more in common than I thought. And uh, I'm looking forward to going back and listening to this and soaking it all in at my own leisure. And like I told you before, I got a newfound respect for you guys juggling all this stuff for podcasts. I bet there's a lot of guys listening and thinking, oh, I could start a podcast. Now that I'm sitting here on the other side of it, I could tell you it's no easy task. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. It's uh it's fun trying to balance everything and hold the conversation and ask the right questions and not get off track. It's uh, So if we screw up, everybody, sorry, we're trying. But, uh, no, I appreciate that, Brian. Um, thanks again so much for coming on and being the co-host tonight. Uh, I want to say to, to everybody, Brian was our, our second guest. So if you haven't heard the number two episode, go back and listen to Brian. 
And, uh, Brian, how else can everybody find you? I'm on Facebook, uh, Brian Scott. That's my middle name. And I also have a page called Back 40 Hunting and Habitat on Facebook. That's Back, the number four zero Hunting and Habitat. And uh, you can get with me on there. Yeah, you got a great page going on. So I recommend everybody who follows us here at the Habitat Podcast to go follow Brian over there at Back 40. And then uh, our normal spiel, you know, we want to thank our partner over at Packer Max. Um, I used my Cultipacker this weekend. I used it to pack down my brand-new food plot and also to fill up my watering holes. So you guys will see a video on that coming soon. Uh, I want to urge you guys to go out there. If you do two things tonight, if you could go and, and uh, leave us a good review on iTunes or on the HabitatPodcast.com website, that would be great. Or uh, please subscribe. Those are two things that really help us out. And I just really thank you for coming back every 10 days or so and, and tuning in. You know, we're busy. We're trying to get this stuff done, but we're also having a blast doing it. And I love hearing the feedback from you guys. So thanks again. If you want to hear more from us, HabitatPodcast.com, iTunes, Look up Habitat Podcast. We're on Stitcher, Podbean, um, all those places that, that host podcasts. And then Facebook.com slash Habitat Podcast. And uh, we will give out some decals to people who leave us great reviews and come on. So let me know. And uh, go out, get out, enjoy your woods. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks again. Yeah.